welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. I uh, got back from, uh, speaking of cultures of consciousness, I got back from um, Azora recently, a a kind of neo-tribal psychedelic underground festival in uh, Hungary, which was a, a, a wonderful time. Uh, not just a, a fun party in a very beautiful place with lots of wonderful structures, um, but the speaker series that I was a part of at Chambrook House, which is the area in the festival where people give talks. It's the oldest structure on the property, a, a, a really remarkable old farmhouse converted to a lecture space. Uh, it was particularly entertaining and, and, and rewarding, um, having been at these sort of festival lecture spaces for quite a long time. Uh, I was very impressed, uh, not just with the the way it was run, but really the sense that even in these kind of marginal, uh, non-academic festival experiential contexts, that the discourse around uh, not just psychedelics, but also the, you know, the place of consciousness in the modern world, how to stay awake and alive, and uh, uh, tuned in um, in our current contemporary chaos that all these uh, languages and discussions have been just getting better and better. So I was really uh, confirmed in my gut feeling that um, while scholarship in academia is very important, uh, that a lot of the real action is happening in these more interstices these places in between, these um, uh, kind of nomad zones where uh, interdisciplinary thinkers uh, come together and uh, share their hard-earned uh, lore. Um, speaking of uh, sort of psychedelic discussions and discourses, I did want to mention uh, that I'll be at the uh, Cultural and Political Perspectives on Psychedelic Science Symposium, which is coming up. Uh, in just about a week and a, or so um, at uh, the California Institute of Integral Studies here in San Francisco. Uh, it's uh, sponsored by uh, Shakruna and the East-West Psychology Department at CIS, put together by uh, Bia Labachi, who's been on uh, Expanding Mind in the past. And I'm just going to be uh, moderating a panel. I'm not, I'm not talking, although I'm sure I'll ask some uh, pesky questions. I feel like it's actually going to be a, uh, a, a bit of a, a sparkly con- conversation there. I think there might be some, uh, some loggerheads, some, uh, some clangs and clings. We'll, we'll, we'll report back after the event. We're going to be uh, talking with David Nichols, who's one of the conference um, presenters, but we'll, uh, we'll be having our conversation after uh, the festival. So, I mean, after the symposium. Uh, so there's already a theme here, which is about uh, the way that conversations around uh, psychedelics, around plant medicines, uh, really around the way in which human beings have come to alter their bodies and their consciousness through uh, plants and medicines and compounds, uh, how these discussions uh, occur both inside and outside of academia. And one of the strongest evidences I've had in my life for the power of learning uh, and the excellence of scholarship outside of the official domains of academia has been my experience of uh, the ethnobotanists I've been blessed to meet in my life. I'm not much of a green thumb. I'm an, I'm an urban dweller. 
you know, I don't know if I could grow a broccoli. I don't know. Uh, but for whatever reason, I, I've, I've actually wound up being, uh, being very good friends with a number of remarkable ethnobotanists, none of whom have uh, university degrees and all of whom are, are not only experts in their field, but like uh, for me, like paragons of, uh, of intellectual, interdisciplinary intellectual work where uh, science, history, natural history, uh, visionary experience, poetry, anthropology, ethnography, all come together, are woven together, not as one thing, but as a space within which we move, and we move in, in, in some very positive and very productive uh, ways. This is all wisdom that needs to be getting out more and more uh, these days, of course, for all number of reasons we don't have to go into. Anyway, today we're going to be talking to one of these uh, ethnobotanists, Dale Millard, I hope I pronounce your last name right, Dale. Uh, and uh, Dale's just, he's from South Africa. He's been doing this stuff for a very long time, uh, you know, traveling the world, exploring, doing research, doing primary research, and then also working with communities to develop ethnobotanical gardens for medicines uh, and uh, working with a lot of indigenous healers. Um, and so we'll be hearing some of these stories and just talking about uh, some of his ethnobotanical research uh, particularly into some of the healing properties of uh, of ayahuasca, something we don't hear about so much because everyone's so gunning for the visions. Uh, with no further ado, Dale, welcome to Expanding Mind. Good, good afternoon, Eric. Good to hear from you. Uh, hey, so I, I'm actually just kind of curious. You know, I don't know that much about uh, about your history. I know that you didn't you didn't come to being an ethnobotanist in a sort of linear way of uh, getting a certain degree and blah blah blah. There's a lot of different things that have uh, flown you know sort of flowed into it. But wh- what was what was happening in your life at the point where you realized that this kind of that that term and that kind of practice and that way of dealing with plants and people uh, was really becoming, you know, w- one of the dominant themes in, in, in your life. I mean, when when did you become, in your own mind, uh, an ethnobotanist? Well, that's quite a strange story. You know, I, I have a background in, in herpetology, which is, for those who don't know, the study of reptiles. And for many years, I was a curator of a reptile research institute in South Africa. And... <clears throat> In my role there, I was the assistant to um, a German professor who used to come to South Africa, a toxicologist known as Michael Ziegler. And it was my job to take him around the country looking for all these venomous creatures that that we would catch. And then he had extract the venom from them. And as a lot of people probably know, venoms are very important in, in terms of drug development. So it was after a couple of years ago, um, looking at reptiles and at, at specifically at something called protein toxicology, I went to live in a valley in South Africa, which was adjacent to one of the, the traditional ancestral valleys in South Africa. And it was at that time that I met a lot of the traditional healers living up there. and. Through what they were doing, I became very interested in, in medicinal plants and learning all that I could about them. So it kind of uh, it was partly an encounter with the the the, the, he, the traditional healers themselves. I mean, that's one of the remarkable thi- remarkable mm-hmm. things about ethnobotany is that you know it takes 
indigenous wisdom or traditional wisdom or local village uh, knowledge very seriously, both as a source of science and a source of natural history of, of specific information about particular plants, what they're good for, what they're not good for. Uh, but it's also embedded in this kind of in a, in a much broader worldview that's that's not the normal worldview of a typical uh, scientist or biologist or or even natural natural historian. So, for you, how much of this journey has been about not just knowing, falling in love with plants and wanting to know about more about plants and what they're good for and what their chemistry is and how the chemistry works with our chemistry, but also a kind of journey into very much older ways than modern science of living in a world of plants in a world of, of psycho, psychoactive and and medic and uh, healing medicines well um you know we are kind of at the point where we are realizing that that through mechanistic scientific approaches we don't we don't know everything and if we start looking at um some of the knowledge that these traditional healers have, it's obvious to me anyway that they have different ways of learning or different ways of of knowing things. And I think um, it's time that uh, we take what these people say seriously. Um, There's many examples I can think of where we've actually missed out, where we've um, taken what, what these healers tell us at face value and um, and have have ignored what they're saying as as more as, as folkloric, um, and then we uh, we discover that um, what they what they meant was quite literal. Um, so yes, you know, being exposed to traditional healers throughout the world, um, I've come to learn that. Um, you know, there are different ways of learning about nature and, and different ways of, you know, being sensitive to the very many lessons that nature has to share. Can you tell me a story about one of your encounters, you know, some uh, a healer or, or uh, you know, medicine figure who was particularly interesting for you or, or you really learned a lot about that whole uh the the combination of of pragmatic real world knowledge and other modes of knowing and being in the world is there some person that that kind of stands out in your in your memory yes um I'm, i must first say you know that when i first got exposed to to traditional healing it was through the the sangomas who are the traditional healers of south africa and I literally wandered into their sacred valley because it was adjacent to my valley. And I I knew very little about these people. Um, I grew up in South Africa in the times of apartheid. So, you know, the traditional healers were ostracized ostracized as being witches and were accused of being involved in witchcraft. And they, they got a very, very bad rap. But I think also because of apartheid, a lot of this kind of knowledge got um, forced into a kind of secrecy and not not open to everyone. Um, So it was about 20 years ago. Now um, I wandered into what is called Mautse Ancestral Valley, which is kind of a pilgrimage site for a lot of the traditional healers of Southern Africa. And it was there I met a woman called Nontobeko Magenganani, 
who we called Monica, her English name um, for short. And she was one of the, what is known as the Mandawa prophets of the Zulus. Okay, these are a group of Sangomas that um, do their trance states in water and not on land. And the reason being is that the, the states that they go into are, are quite cat catatonic. And if you try to do them on land, a person gets thrown about and they can injure themselves. So they are a specific sect of Sangomas that go into water and into trance and then go underwater and they come out. And so this woman, Monica, um, played a very important role in my life in explaining a lot of this very weird and strange stuff to me. And uh, I think she also helped me in my personal spiritual development in life. But um, so I would say she was kind of like my, my spiritual mum in, in all of this weird stuff. <laughs> that's, uh, that's wonderful. And you, once you got on, uh, into this stuff, um, it sounds like it, it really took you around the world. I mean, I know you've lived in Indonesia. Uh, you've done work in Brazil. Uh, you've done work in the Amazon. It, it, you, you've moved around a lot. Um, talk about some of the, the projects you've done. I mean, I know that in some, some cases you've, you've actually gone into communities and, and helped uh, people sort of uh, create gardens for um, ethnobotanical substances, plants, healing herbs, etc., and really uh, working with uh, locals to revive uh, some of these some of these traditions. Can you talk about one of these uh, one of these explorations you did? Sure. Um, well, you know, the main focus of my work over this years um, is really I, I didn't want to be an ethnobotanist that would go into traditional cultures, you know, research their knowledge and, uh, and record it without giving anything back. Um, you know, I regard this kind of knowledge as, as incredibly precious, um, especially to the people who, who benefit from it. But um, <clears throat> so what I ended up doing over the years, and I worked through a couple of um, NGOs that, that did this kind of work, is I would go into communities, research the common uh, common primary healthcare problems that they have, whether it be malaria or whether it be waterborne diseases or sexually transmitted infections. And in third world countries, you often find that the, the problems that people are encountering are often the same. <clears throat> so once you have a list of the primary healthcare problems that people suffer from, you can then look at chemistry in plants that might be able to help with this, this situation. So the first thing that is very important is to look at plants that have, or plant chemistry that, that have very um, broad safety profiles, because especially when, you, when you're um, dealing with uh, language barriers and things, you can't make a mistake that that somebody could poison themselves. Um, so basically, if you look at plants that are, are very, very safe, plants that have very broad spectrum chemistry, and I'll explain this in a second because this is important. Um, many of the plants that you find um, used medicinally are used for many, many different medical conditions. 
And this differs quite a bit from what we find in Western medicine, where most of our medicines are target-based, where we use one um, specific chemical against um, a specific disease or problem. But with plants, you know, they contain many, many different chemicals. And that um, is why they are potentially useful for so many different conditions. So what you find in all the main uh, medicinal systems throughout the world, whether they be Chinese medicine or Ayurveda or African medicine, you find these central plants that seem to be useful for a myriad of problems. And the rationale exists is because that they have um, very broad spectrum chemicals. Um, so what I discovered, if you look at the plants, that modulate immune function in humans, which is one of my, my interests. Um, these plants, which are found in practically all um, cultures that have used medicinal plants, have very broad spectrum effects in terms of the kind of diseases that they're able to influence. And the reason being is that the, the, the impact is directly on the immune system. Um, but to try and simplify that, what you could do is you could go into community and you could look at all their diseases, whether it be malaria, whether it be um, typhoid, and you could find a group of maybe 10 to 20 plants, which you could te teach people to grow. And, you know, that would give them some kind of solutions in terms of um, helping when these problems arise. Well, one of the interesting things about what you're mentioning is this uh, the the fact that both the the broad spectrum chemistry of some plants and the fact that some target the immune system helps explain the range of maladies that are that that, that plants can treat. Because you know, from again growing up in a Western culture you, where you have targeted medicine, this is this particular you know, uh, molecule is targeted at this particular complaint, and then you, you come across more traditional claims for whatever, you know, uh, ostefatida or whatever, that's like, okay, it can do this and this and this and this, it's good with cancer, it's good with this, and you're like, what? I mean, how could it, how could it touch so many things? But what you're, what you're saying is that's in a way kind of what makes a plant different than a you know, modern industrial uh, medicine is, is, or at least sometimes, that there's such a broad range, uh, and there, and sometimes that the immune system itself, which is this kind of meta system that's able to deal with so many different maladies, that those are the things that are being targeted. So it it gives it a lot more, um, it makes a lot more sense to me when you when you put it that way. Well, it gives a a, a medicine that works directly in the immune system. Um, those kind of medicines are the broadest spec spectrum of all because all our diseases have some kind of impact on the immune level. Um, but, you know, when we look at target-based medicine, it's, it's been our research paradigm that we, we isolate one chemical and then we test that chemical um, for various particular kinds of effects. Um, now, the reasons that they do that is, as I mentioned, it's our research paradigm, but it's also because of profit, because, you know, they hope to eventually find one magic molecule, which then they can hopefully synthesize and uh, produce a whole lot of drugs based on, on that target molecule. But the problem is, 
you know, nature is living and it evolves. So when you have one molecule, um, as we are, have already found out in allopathic medicine, um, you get resistance. Um, so, you know, all cancers become resistant over time to um, single molecules, so do viruses and so do bacteria. And the problem is they do it rather quickly. Whereas in our current drug development paradigm, it takes 10 years um, of researching in animals and in humans to develop one specific drug against a specific organism. So a little bit of a disclaimer, um, I'm uh, a fan of whole plant medicine, particularly because I believe that um, you get a much better synergistic effect of using many chemicals together than you get from these monodrug therapies. And I might just also add that, you know, resistance um, is something that is strictly isolated to Western medicine. You know, in Ayurvedic medicine or Chinese medicine, as far as we know, or in traditional medicine, we don't know of any organism that becomes resistant to plants. And resistance is a growing problem in Western medicine. Oh, that's fascinating. I hadn't thought about that. Just the, the it's almost like nature has network effects because of its complexity. And that makes it difficult to study from a Western perspective because you can't you isolate particular causes. I mean, we see this even today with, with cannabis, you know, people trying to figure out where, where exactly do the healing properties of cannabis come from? How do we actually treat it? And there's a tension in the, in the cannabis uh, research community between those who believe that we should be studying the whole plant with the synergistic effects, knowing that it increases the complexity, and those that basically want to have piles of isolated white powders that have been extracted from cannabis and can be used to target specific things. And it's a very interesting paradigm because it's happening inside of the research. So you have researchers who are Western trained, they have that mechanistic model, but they're still saying, you know, but to really do right by this plant as, as a medicine, we have to look at it in its complexity, even though that makes our job harder. It makes our job a lot harder, but um, it makes it much more interesting. It makes uh, it gives a much broader array of effects. Um, you know, if you look at cannabis, you know, most people know about uh, THC or tetrahydrocannabinol, and that's supposedly the 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 main chemical in cannabis that that would get you high. But that's not true because there's many other chemicals in in cannabis that are now known now known, you know, to um, produce a variety of effects. Um, the flavonols, for example, you know, also add to um, the psychoactive effects. So, you know, this mono drug thing to me is a bit simplistic. Um, yeah. You know, the, the foods that we eat contain many, many, many chemicals and they have um, physiological effects in our bodies. Yeah, the airwoods, uh, earth and fire, where they always like to say that we're like, we're on drugs all the time because we're, you know, if you, once you recognize that food has psychophysiological effects, psychoactive effects, as well as this broad range of physiological responses, medical responses, once you, once you embrace food that way, which is, of course, a healthy way to deal with food because it helps you prioritize things that are better for you and to recognize that 
while that deep fried donut is delicious and sometimes the most appropriate thing to eat at that given time, that overall <laughs> it may not be the best the best medicine. So once you kind of uh, you know adopt that framework where we're we're swimming in drugs all the time, it's not like there's a specific point where a drug enters our system. Uh, then you know you kind of open up to. I, I, it seems to me a, a much broader uh, a way of thinking about the role that plants and other medicines um, uh, pl- uh, play in our lives, which is sort of seems to be part of what the messages that some of these healers have. I mean, having having worked with you know traditional healers, what are some things that people have said about the plant world or about medicine or about healing? that are you know different than a western model but that you've really taken to heart that you've really that have really stayed with you as a important way of thinking about both the science and the larger context of uh healing medicines plant medicines well um you know firstly the the approach of most of these people uh most of these traditional healers um well, firstly, they they mostly all come from animistic backgrounds, okay, which means that they they believe that nature is alive, you know, um, and plants themselves operate. Plants themselves have their own spirits, and when you look at uh, how some of these healers come to acquiring their information. Um, don't necessarily expect rational answers. Um, you know, often a healer would say to you, oh, well, the, the spirits told me, or, um, you know, uh, um, <clears throat> and we, we as Westerners, you know, we, we regard these things as, as kind of strange. But I, I believe, you know, this is exactly what happens. Um, somehow these people have sensitivity to being able to translate these kind of signals from nature whether it be the spirits or whatever but they have a way of interpreting whether it be the patterns or the the subtleties of nature that they can derive useful meaning from and it, it clearly I mean, has been made any sense. yeah yeah of course no and i mean it's also been inspiring to you i mean you you, you in a way i mean partly because of the, the path that your your own knowledge, your own science, your own exploration, your own practices have taken you, which is not the conventional way through Western medicine or, or getting even a university degree, but being out in the field, and yet you have an you know, extraordinary knowledge of the chemistry and the, the you know, Western taxonomy and natural history. So in a way, you, you kind of have approached almost the, the, some of the similar intuitions but from the other side where you've also seen the limits of western models and how this more intuitive uh, realm or or animist realm actually has something to say to you too or to other people who are who are coming from a more western uh, uh, background even if it it takes a different form or maybe has a different language so in what ways would you say that as an ethnobotanist, you also have some element of, let's say, animism in the way in which you think about things. Is, is that would that be fair to say? Definitely. Um, you know, I, I think it's uh, useful to try and make the best of both worlds. 
So, you know, if I go into traditional culture, for example, and I find a plant that I know that they've been using for 4,000 years, I've seen it work, I know it works. I don't necessarily need the academic studies to back it up, but it's useful to have both, both those points of view. Um, you know, a lot of the plants that are used in the Amazon and other places are, are quite deadly poisonous and they need extreme skill in order to use them in a way that is not safe, uh, to, uh, not dangerous. So when I would encounter a plant like that, you know, I would, I would like to know the, the toxicology studies of it. Yeah, I would, I would say so. You know, <laughs> thinking about this whole idea of plants as spirits, from a Western perspective, of course, one thing that's happening now and that has been happening, you know, strongly, visibly, you know, even from the mainstream world uh, over the last 10 years or so has been the, the rise of uh, Western interest in, in ayahuasca, which is, of course, a, a wonderful example of a very complex, very broad spectrum chemical chemistry uh, compound that is used for healing as well as for the visionary properties that is what mostly draws uh, Westerners. But it's very interesting because you have, I mean, it, it, there must be, you know, hundreds of thousands of examples now of people who come more or less from a Western background. They're, they're not necessarily that aware of anthropology or the history of animism or, or what does it mean to think about things as, as being, as plants as being alive. And yet they go through these experiences on the other end, they come out and they're like, you know, the spirit of ayahuasca told me this and da da da. There's this weird like inroad of, of animism around um, ayahuasca. And since I know you've done some some really wonderful research on ayahuasca that's not what I've read, you know, it's not the kind of stuff I normally hear about, even among, uh, you know, scientific researchers, segue into talking about uh, your, your interest in ayahuasca and particularly from these angles that we've already been talking about, but broad spectrum healing effects, what's going on scientifically, chemically inside the brew that, and, and, and what kind of, uh, uh, you know, things that suggestions that you've seen of, of healing capacities. And, and then also the, f the fact that there's no, I think there's no way to engage ayahuasca uh, without uh, engaging the kind of animist worldview to, to say loosely, that is that the that this material has been embedded in for thousands of years. Um, one of the things about ayahuasca now that it's become a, a global phenomenon um, is, you know, people uh, take it all over the world mainly for these kind of epic experiences or life-changing experiences that it might be able to provide. Um, and certainly, uh, it is a very valuable tool for that. But in my research, what, what I became very interested in is how little we have looked at how the Indians in the Amazon ha have been using ayahuasca and for what purposes. And it's known that ayahuasca is used in, um, for practically everything in the Amazon. It's been recorded being used in hunting. It's been recorded being used in the past in war. It's recorded being used in childbirth. Um, but it's also well documented to be used in the treatment of many physiological ailments. 
And when I looked at the research as to the kind of ailments that ayahuasca treats, I found in the entire, um, entire writings of ayahuasca, maybe four scant references to ayahuasca being used as a physiological medicine. And those were mostly for things like parasites. So, uh, you know, we hear a lot about ayahuasca as a visionary plant or visionary compound, you know, plant compound of many plants, um, but less about it as a, as a, as a medicine. I mean, uh, and so can you, can you talk about that aspect uh, of the brew? You know, again, if you go and you look at the traditional use of ayahuasca in the Amazon, um, we find that ayahuasca is used for practically everything. And uh, it's also used to produce these strong visionary experiences, which I kind of think the Western worlds became totally captivated with, without really looking at the physiological properties of ayahuasca. And if you look at the chemistry of ayahuasca, ayahuasca is uh, essentially made from two plants. One is a large jungle vine called Banisteriopsis carpi, mixed with the leaves of a member of the coffee family, Sarcotria viridis, okay, which contains the DMT component, which is the visionary component. But if you look especially at um, some of the alkaloids, which are found in the vine, we find that um, the, these alkaloids known as beta-carbolines um, have very, very extensive and broad spectrum physiological effects. I mean, <clears throat> I, in my studies, looked at one, one of these alkaloids called harmine. Now, in a cup of ayahuasca, most, the most common alkaloid, it's 44% on average of the total of a cup of ayahuasca, um, this alkaloid harmine has very, very broad spectrum effects. Um, it has strong antimicrobial properties. It kills um, certain viruses, bacteria, and fungi. Um, it has very exciting anti-diabetic properties. It makes you more sensitive, sensitive to insulin. And in a, in a study it that was done in rats, it even showed that it was able to regrow some of the pancreatic beta cells, which are, are, are damaged in um, type 1 diabetics. Um, it's also no, known to have strong anti-cancer properties. Um, both harmine and tetrahydroharmine found in ayahuasca have very potent antidepressant effects. Um, harmine also has been shown to be anabolic to bone. So, you know, it can help in repairing broken bones. It's very helpful in conditions like osteoporosis. Um, it's even chondrogenic. It helps um, with the outgrowth of cartilage. Um, so it's very useful in, in diseases like arthritis. Um, and now how, how well, uh, like uh, how much is this is, is uh is kind of new research. I mean, have people been looking at harming for a, for a long time? Um, is there been sort of a rash of studies more recently, partly because of the sort of celebrity of of ayahuasca and the vine? Um, well, both. You know, we've been looking um, at at harming. Um, we first became aware of 
you know, some of the physiological properties of harmine, which was then called banisterine in 1928. But since then, you know, a lot of the focus on harmine has been, has been focused mainly, mainly on its psychological effects. And I would say it's only really in the last 15 years that ha people have become very aware of the broad spectrum physiological effects. And there's been um, a recent surge in interest, especially out of China and out of Japan. The Chinese are, are studying, uh, studying a lot into harmine at the moment. That's fascinating. I, I did want to ask just a little bit about the psychological effects, just because there's you know so much discourse in in the psychedelic world about DMT and you know the sort of like boilerplate uh, you know elevator pitch for ayahuasca is like yeah well the the vine you know lets you uh, 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 sort of engage an orally active form of DMT and that's really what's going on but of course the vine ha does have its own psychological or spiritual. Uh, properties that have, to some extent, not been uh, as acknowledged as much. So even before we talk about the physiological effects, what what are the psychological uh, aspects of, of harmine and, and, right. and Most people, when they look at ayahuasca, um, tend to believe that the the visionary aspects of, of ayahuasca come solely from the DMT plant, um, which is facilitated to become... Um, systemically active by the vine, which co contains the MOA inhibitors. But those MOA inhibitors, um, like harmine and tetrahydroharmine, are psychoactive on their own. Um, if you take enough of a brew of just the, just the vine component, um, you will find that um, it makes you very wobbly on your legs. So, so they, it affects balance. Um, it's um, very responsible for a component of the visions. Um, harmine on its own produces visions which are very watery and um, have a fluidity to the way they move. Um, so to think that the, the DMT is the only psychoactive component of, of ayahuasca is, is totally incorrect. I mean, if you look at um, another plant called Paganum harmala or Syrian rue, which um, some of the listeners might be um, aware of, you know, the, that is the psychoactive compound which produces the red color used in Persian carpets. Now, if you ever wanted to know where they got their inspiration for the design of those carpets, it comes from, from, from um, Syrian rue, which contains a closely related compound, harmaline, which is found in smaller amounts in the ayahuasca brew. That's fascinating. And, you know, and, and uh, I never thought about the connection with the, uh, the visionary patterns of the uh, of the carpets because because Syrian rue is used so widely and it's you know you know traditionally thrown into the fire. I mean it's a very important part of that that whole uh, culture. What one one question I've always you know been wanted to ask someone someone who knows what they're talking about is like what what as a class what are beta carbolines what what purpose do they serve where do we see them 
what's that you know because i've always find it easier to understand um natural chemistry by kind of understanding the class of things that are in the, the things are in and, and sort of how they they work broadly uh and then talking about specific examples like harmine or harmaline so what are beta carbon carbolines beta carbolines are a group of alkaloids which are derived from tryptophan okay and they have um the classical um, beta carboline ring in, in their structure. Um, so, you know, plant, plants produce these various secondary metabolites. Some of them are, are alkaloids. Now, it's not proven, but it's believed that these alkaloids occur in plants and animals to help them adapt to stresses, whether it be ultraviolet light stress or temperature stress, or, you know, some of them are very bitter, so they help the plant escape predation. Um, but we don't really know. But what we do know is that beta-carbolines are very widespread in nature. I mean, um, they're in your coffee, they're in your beer, they're in your passion fruit. Um, but they are also increasingly being discovered in human beings. You know, we have various beta-carbolines in us, um, many of which the function is totally poorly understood. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a, a crazy example. Um, you know, when you get cataracts in your eyes, um, it's been discovered that these three beta-carbolines, which are very similar to harmine, which is the main beta-carboline found in ayahuasca, Three of these harmine-like beta-carbolines suddenly pitch up in the lens of your eye and they try and help um, reverse the proce process of crystallization. So, so there we can see that they potentially have um, uh, a healing response in the body. But um, you know, not all beta-carbolines are good. One of the beta-carbolines called tetrahydroharmine, harmane, is detected in the body round about the the time of um, your headache after a heavy night's drinking. So the body converts some of alcohol, alcohol into tetrahydra um, tetrahydroharmane, and so that's thought to be a bit of a neurotoxic beta carbolin. Um, so they are very, to answer your question, they are very, very large group of alkaloids that are found throughout nature. Um, I believe they are very broad spectrum in, in their function, um, both in the body and in nature. Um, an interesting example is, you know, the prototype chemical beta-carboline, which is called nor, norharmane, is the stuff that uh, covers scorpions. And I don't know if you've ever seen a scorpion under ultraviolet light. No. It's, um, it glows. It becomes very fluorescent. And um, so why a scorpion would be covered in something that fluoresces in UV light is anybody's guess. But it, um, to me, you know, scorpions are involved in these very elaborate mating dances. And um, they do it in, in blackness of night. So it potentially helps their, their mates, it potentially helps them to find, find each other for mating, which in a broader sense is, you know, a kind of signaling. 
And then we see in the in the body that beta-carbolines are involved in various signaling processes in the body. Um, but to answer your questions, we don't we don't really know what beta-carbolines do in nature. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's a really, really interesting question, especially that whole that whole role of signaling. I mean, you know, we're 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 we kind of our, our natural or well, I don't say natural, but just like our, our human centric mode is to go. Yes, you know, humans have language. Uh, clearly, you know, higher mammals they signal to each other. But even though, uh, but at the but once you kind of take that sort of uh, prejudice away, you realize that nature's signaling all the time. That it's. It's growing and changing and eating and digesting and all of that's happening, but there's also just signaling happening, you know, all over the place. And it seems like there's a connection in some ways, or maybe there is. I, I'm not sure between that signaling function and then some of these healing properties as well. Um, I think so because, firstly, um, as I mentioned, many of these beta carbolines that we're talking about are endogenous, so they found in our bodies. And if something is occurring in the body, it must be there for a function. Um, we can see with, um, <clears throat> with harmine in that um, it's very anabolic to bone. And as I mentioned, you know, very good for osteop osteoporosis and arthritis and those bones and joint diseases. But <clears throat> it, it's effects um, in these diseases, is it is it um, is it modulates um, something called bone morphogenetic proteins or BMPs, and so it it mod modulates the signals um, in order to cause the the, the bones um, uh, to produce more mass. I see. So it's like working on a, a kind of uh, the meta level of the. Of yes. The yeah. um, but, you know, inside, inside our body, you know, a lot of um, stuff, that, the metabolic processes, the way that, um, you know, cells talk to each other is, is, is through signaling. Which kind of makes sense. You know, it's funny if you think about all these things uh, in terms of the the visionary experience associated with, with, with ayahuasca where you, you're in this sort of universe of like myriad signals and, you know, different entities and points of view and perspectives. And it's, you, you're sort of like in this, you know, I don't want to call it the internet because the internet's so lame in a lot of ways, but it's, you know, it's a, a very rich informational space. And sometimes when I think about that stuff, I go, you know, how much of this is just the way that, our imaginations are translating because of the particular visionary capacity of these compounds, but our imaginations are just translating what's actually happening on a metabolic level. Like we're, we're, we're starting to, we're, it's not another world, you know, another fantastic world of creatures and demons and angels, even though we see those things sometimes. But really what we're doing is it's kind of like an interface to grok the metabolic reality of what's happening as our bodies engage these particular uh, compounds and go through their processes and and meet each other and signal to each other so there's that there's something very uh, concrete about uh the processes that 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 inspire even the the wildest visions well that that of course is the million dollar question you know why these things are are, are neurotransmitters 
okay? Things like DMT are very potent neurotransmitters. And you know, what are all these acacia trees doing and why is it such a common compound in nature? Um, you know, what is the function? And I think, I, I think when I look at something like harming anyway, I see, I don't only see one function, I see these simple molecules um, being extremely polyfunctional, if that makes any sense. Yeah, are there particularly unusual aspects of harming as a molecule? Is it is it uh, you know does it just travel widely, or are there are there, are there things you can say about the particular care its particular character as a molecule? Um, it's a it's a, like DMT. It's a very very simple molecule structurally. Um, one of the interesting things is it's very similar to harmaline, which is also found in, in ayahuasca, but in much smaller amounts. And although they're structurally so similar, what it seems to me is that even the slightest um, change in structure can end up in different activity. Um, one of the things um, that I mentioned in my research is that harmine binds to DNA more than 100 times more efficiently than harmaline. So harmine even has potent genetic effects. Um, and this is uh, interesting um, in terms of um, cancer treatment, because, you know, if you can damage DNA of a cancer cell, you can kill it as long as you don't uh, damage the DNA of the healthy cells. Um, and funny enough, an, a new paper has shown that, although it's well known that, that harmine does intercalate very strongly with DNA, um, a new paper has shown that its um, anti-cancer effects um, seem to not be through this DNA um, intercalation, but it has other ways of causing programmed cell death in certain kinds of cancers. Do, do lots of things intercalate with, with DNA that way? That's one thing I've always, I've always wondered. You, know, you, you hear that and you go, wow, that's so amazing. You go like, well, but maybe a lot of stuff does that. Um, uh, what are the kinds not, of things that do that? Um, not a lot of things intercalate with DNA as strongly as, as harming. Um, now, normally when something does intercalate with DNA, um, it's normally um, it's normally throws warning lights to look for toxicity because you know if something damages the DNA of a cell and that cell survives and divides, that's what cancer is. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword. Now, <clears throat> um, basically, um, things that intercalate with DNA. Um, are known as genotoxins, you know, because they can damage DNA. Now, some things that intercalate with DNA, DNA are, are genotoxic, but they're also mutagens. They cause the change in the, in the, in the DNA, and if um, that cell then divides, that causes cancer. So not all things that are genotoxic are mutagenic. And harming is one of those because, you know, loads of people all over the world um, drink ayahuasca. And um, if it was a genotoxic agent, you know, we would all have cancer by now. But um, harming is quite unique 
and special in this regard in that it is something that intercalates with DNA very, very strongly and doesn't seem to cause cancer. On the contrary, it seems to, well, it already has research in several different kinds of cancers. Yeah, that's fascinating. And well, one thing you mentioned earlier was uh, was depression as well. Is there any, um, you know, and I know that, that, that people have done a number of research projects showing uh, antidepressive effects of, of ayahuasca for people with clinical depression, and there clearly seems to be a theme of, of psychedelics and their capacity to, you know, reboot people, and, you know, you can talk about that on a cognitive level, et cetera, et cetera, but in terms of the specific uh, dynamics of harming is there, are there some ideas about why harming might be involved in in these antidepressant effects how it might be functioning in the system what's it what's it actually doing on a on a neurological level yes but it's um um <clears throat> there are two alkaloids in ayahuasca that uh, clearly have um strong effects in terms, uh, in terms of being an antidepressant. Um, one of them is tetrahydrohamine, and the other one is, is harmine. Um, so on the one hand, you know, um, harmine and tetrahydrohamine are monoamino oxidase inhibitors. And if you inhibit monoamino oxidase, um, you allow your serotonin levels um, to build. Um, but what is very, very interesting about harmine and harmaline is that the longer you take them, the more sensitive you become to them, meaning that, you know, these compounds are also quite uniquely create what is known as reverse tolerance. So meaning that if you were to start taking harmine as, a, as an antidepressant, the longer you took it, the less you would have to take to get the same effect. And so I think it's a particularly good antidepressant because it kind of weans you off itself, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that's, that, that is really remarkable. Um, what do you think is going to come out of this? I mean, are we, is it going to uh, revise a people's view of ayahuasca? I mean, I think I remember hearing you say once that after doing all the, all the studies of harming, that, you, that you, you would drink the the rather bitter brew, even if it didn't have any visionary effects. You know, you're like, I, I, I just take um, this. I, I would, because if I look at um, how many of these, um, you know how many areas of medicine harming could potentially um, show value in, and, and specifically in areas of medicine, you know, that, that we have problems with. Um, you know, on the neurological effects, it was discovered a couple of years ago that, you know, um, harmine uh, causes neurogenesis, both harmine and tetrahydrohamine. You know, well, in all these neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and Huntington's and Parkinson's, which we, we are really challenged with in Western medicine, you know, something that can produce a lot, a lot of neurogenesis is, is extremely valuable. Um, you know, to to take something like ayahuasca regularly, very possibly protects you against very uh, certain kinds of cancers. Um, um, you know, all these all these things that normally degenerate with us in age. Um, you know, it seems like harmine causes the outgrowth of 
certain kinds of tissues that normally degenerate in all of us with age. And these are things like our nervous tissue, our neurons, um, our joints, our bones, our pancreatic beta cells. And so at the same time, you know, I see that harmine has these very broad spectrum effects in terms of, of cancer cells, the bad cells. It has these very broad spectrum anti-parasitic effects and it um, has research to show that it can kill many, many um, parasites that again in, in the West we have uh, some difficulty treating or we, we treat with um, some toxicity. So if it, if we, my feeling is that if you take something like ayahuasca regularly or you take harmine regularly, what it does is it kills off all these bad guys, all these bad cells and parasites, um, you know, that all of us accumulate and get. And all these cells that degenerate in all of us with age, it causes the outgrowth of those kind of tissues. Um, which is a very interesting thing, you know. Um, there hasn't been much study, but many people have spoken about the anti-aging effects of ayahuasca. And if you look at traditional populations, you can certainly see that there's a there seems to be a correlation between um, indigenous people that use ayahuasca regularly and um, their normal degrees in which with which they age. That's that's very uh, very interesting uh, observation. It seems like there's many many dimensions to this uh, to this marvelous brew again beyond the uh, the visionary ones that so capture the Western imagination. But we're going to have to stop there, Dale. So I know we could keep talking and learning more from you. I I always love uh, learning from you, uh, and just want to thank you again for for coming on Expanding Mind and uh, talking about your research. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, great, folks. Until next week, keep your minds open.